enthusiasm. Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. And it's a special Grand Rounds today because uh, this is the William Chambers Professorship that occurs every year as part of our Medical Grand Rounds series. And we are completely delighted that Elliot Fisher is our speaker for today. Let me just tell you uh, for a moment a little bit about Dr. Chambers. He began his career here at, uh, through Dartmouth Medical School in 1946 as a teaching fellow when he uh, joined our uh, program. He received his undergraduate degree from Amherst College and his MD from Cornell College of Medicine. He served in the United States Army in the Medical Corps for three years, rising from first lieutenant to major and receiving the Bronze Star. At Dartmouth Medical School, Dr. Chambers rose to the rank of Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, and during his lifetime, he was known throughout the New England region as a compassionate, caring physician who put his patients first, but also was known for his inspired writing about uh, the care of patients. I have here the William Nesbitt Chambers Haverford Lectures he, from 1958 to 1960, and he wrote about a lot of topics. The one in 1958 was about spirituality in medicine, and I just wanted to read you a little piece. He says, specialization is not a new aspect of medicine. It was well known in ancient Egypt. But today, remember this is 1958. Today, in the unending stream of remarkable and illuminating discoveries in the realm of pure and applied science, forces many conscientious physicians into increasingly restricted fields. This results in a focusing down on specific body systems and diseases to the exclusion and loss of the person as a whole. With this increase in the so-called scientific approach, there results a decrease in the art of medicine. And he goes on in this essay to talk about the importance of spirituality and in looking at the patient as a whole. In his lectures in 1960 at Haverford College, in which he um, uh, uh, went on to talk about his uh, the the areas of his of his uh, practice, he says, during the 20 years that I have been a physician, I too have been impressed by the importance of the attitude of my patients in relation to their situation in life and their illnesses. I believe that this plays a part in the cause and course of all illness, though its importance varies with the patient and the disease. The factor of personal responsibility may often make the difference between the healthy and diseased state as well as determining the course of an illness and its outcome. We're going to actually return to this theme a little bit through this idea of personal and community responsibilities as we hear from Elliot in just a little while. But such a learned man and such a wonderful clinician, and after his death, his wife established the funds that have allowed us to uh, pursue the Chambers Lectureship on an annual basis, selecting individuals from around the country or from among our own distinguished faculty who can tell us more about the relationships with our patients, the practice of medicine, and we're again delighted to have Elliot with us uh, to do that. We are also delighted to have Virginia Day and Elizabeth Tal and her husband with us the daughters of uh, Dr. Chambers, and Mrs. Chambers, their mother, was not able to be with us today. Dale Gephardt, a long-term friend of Dr. Chambers, is here, and he's, as you know, a member of our faculty for many, many years. Let me very briefly tell you about Elliot. Uh, he is a professor in the Dartmouth Institute, professor of medicine, and professor of community and family medicine, and as you know, 
he directs the Dartmouth Institute. Uh, Elliot got his undergraduate degree at Harvard, where he studied East, studied East Asian studies, and because he was not pre-med, went off to the University of Washington to do those courses, returning to Harvard Medical School to get his MD, and then went back uh, across the coast. There was a lot of that going back and forth, where he did his internship and residency in primary care internal medicine at the University of Washington, then pursued his MPH there while he was a senior clinical scholar of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation there. Returning then to Dartmouth, where we've kept him for this time, where he's <laughs> served both at the VA Medical Center for many, many years and uh, began much of their look at outcomes uh, while he was there in his early years uh, and uh, has uh, obviously been involved with the Dartmouth Atlas, co-authoring its many versions and, uh, and continues to work on variations of healthcare. His early research focused on exploring the causes and consequences of the twofold differences in spending around different regions. That research revealed that higher Medicare spending could not be explained by differences in health status, preferences, prices, or poverty, that it was due to greater use of discretionary services, and he will reflect on that with us today. His later work has been focused on developing and evaluating policy approaches to slowing the growth of healthcare spending while improving quality. He was one of the originators of the concept of accountable care organizations and worked with colleagues to carry out the research that led to their inclusion in the Affordable Care Act, as you well know. His current research focuses on exploring the determinants of successful ACO formation and performance, and that's what he's gonna to talk to us about today. He's an incredibly prolific writer, he's a wonderful speaker, he's an outstanding colleague, and just a really good guy. So thank you. <laughs> welcome, help, welcome with me. Oh, you know, what an incredible honor to be here. Is the mic on? Can people hear okay? Uh, are we rolling, Bob, back to the video there? Um, it really is an incredible honor to be here and to see, you know, John Wasson, who recruited my wife and, and me here, Nan here, uh, all these old friends and familiar faces. So it's, it's, quite, it's quite daunting to be here. This is an incredible honor to be giving this, this amazing lecture and that I've attended so many times. So thank you, Rich. Thank you, colleagues. What a treat. Uh, Forty years ago, I was graduating from Harvard in East Asian Studies with no clue what I wanted to do with my life. So I decided to drive an ambulance in Somerville, Massachusetts for a year uh, after graduation. And I'd grown up in Cambridge, uh, the son of a prominent law professor, as many of you know. Um, but driving the ambulance in Somerville, kids were dying of things that none of my classmates at the Shishi private school I went to even developed, asthma, diabetes. And it was pretty clear that the causes were poverty, primary cause was poverty, um, and that contributing to their uh, poor health was a lousy healthcare, the lousy healthcare system that was present in Somerville. So I thought, I'm having fun driving an ambulance. You have this sense that maybe sometimes people survive to the emergency room because you contributed to their survival, although probably it was human resilience and had nothing to do with us. Um, and I thought, go to med school, that's fun, and maybe I'll someday get involved in health policy and be able to try to address some of the kinds of issues that the kids faced in Somerville. So it is a, a wonderful you know, honor to be here. Um, 
spirituality, you know, Amherst, you know, daughter went to Amherst, my great-grandfather was a preacher, my grandfather was a, a Presbyterian, an Episcopalian minister, so I feel kind of right at home here, and if I start to slip into preaching, just uh, forgive my genetic, uh, my genetic history. You know, we know that uh, quality's uneven, but this is a really big problem. All of the red ink facing uh, the federal government uh, is due to the rising cost of health care. It's bankrupting our capacity to invest in science. It's bankrupting our capacity to invest in schools. It plays down to states. It plays down uh, to the community level. So uh, we've spent a, a lot of us have spent a lot of time worrying about this. And I want to try to make the following argument. Healthcare costs are bankrupting us. I just finished that part of the argument, by the way. Um, this need not be so. New delivery models offer promise. They are working, but it's not going to be sufficient. And most of my talk will be around how to overcome the challenges we face and the insufficiency of these new payment models. And then I'll wrap up saying it's not going to be easy, but with luck it'll be fun. So, you know, the Dartmouth Atlas, uh, some of you may not know this, but it's pretty commonly observed. We talk about it a lot here. Huge differences in per capita spending across the United States. Uh, probably two and a half fold. This, the red dots are highlighted on the right. Uh, Lebanon spends about $8,000 per Medicare beneficiary, which is about $1,500 more than is spent on a Medicare beneficiary in La Crosse, where we believe they get every, every bit as uh, high quality outcomes and where the underlying health of the population is no better than here. There are relatively high prevalence of obesity. I don't know how many people are here from Wisconsin. They eat a lot of cheese. Um, you know, it's a relatively unhealthy community if you look at the population health statistics. So the differences are not explained um, by differences in underlying health status. Rich already referred to that. So let me try in a single slide um, to summarize everything we've learned in the last 30 years about the relationship between spending and quality. It's often referred to in Texas as a Cheney plot um, after a famous vice president who went, gosh, was using his shotgun. Um, it, it, uh, you see the horizontal axis uh, is price-adjusted spending in the first year uh, after hospital, initial hospitalization for a hip fracture. The vertical axis is survival um, at one year for a hip fracture patient. And this is the relationship we observe almost in everywhere we look. Um, there is no relationship between spending and quality in the United States healthcare system. And it's for two reasons. Um, first, it's because the things that make people survive are about doing the right thing right, about delivering safe, reliable, and effective care, making sure people get out of the hospital, stay mobile, um, get properly anticoagulated, get early surgery. Those are the things that allow patients to survive a hip fracture. The differences in spending across regions, at least so far, are almost all explained by how much time people spend in the hospital. Identical people spend in the hospital. If you're hospitalized with a hip fracture in Miami or in, in Texas, you'll spend about twice as long in the hospital over the first year after your initial hip fracture as you do if you're hospitalized in La Crosse or here, for that matter. Um, so this is about getting to the lower, right, lower left-hand quadrant of that graph is all about two things, delivering safe, reliable, and effective care, and keeping people out of the hospital, avoiding unnecessary visits to specialists, um, avoiding unnecessary nursing home stays. However, when we, when we fit, and that, amazingly, that work took like 10 years, you know, John Skinner, a whole bunch of us, just to find out that there's no association. 
we then had a fair bit of work to do to figure out, so what explains the differences that we see? Yes, we see people are spending more time in the hospital, they're getting more tests, but why? Uh, and that was, a, that was another five to 10 years of work. Lots of people in this room contributed to it. Uh, Brenda Sirovich, uh, many others here. Uh, the sites are kind of along the bottom in font that you poss can't possibly read. Um, but we looked at whether it was patient preferences. It's not. Patients don't want to spend more time in the hospital in the high spending regions. It's malpractice turns out to be important. So it explains about 10% of the state-to-state -state differences in per capita healthcare spending. Um, people, when they're faced with higher um, malpractice pressure measured in the number of suits filed, people do um, order more diagnostic tests. But it only explains about 10% of the state-to-state -state differences in per capita spending. So it leaves an awful lot unexplained. Uh, the, it's not just fee-for-service medicine either, because it's fee-for-service medicine in the low-spending regions just as it is in the high-spending regions. Well, that was kind of, that's kind of interesting. Um, supply does turn out to be important. That is, if you look at the number of hospital beds per capita, and Jack Wenberg's early work showed this way back into the, you know, back in the 70s. If you have more hospital beds under a payment model that is fee-for-service, where you must, must manage your revenues, I saw some revenue folks here, Dan, you were here, uh, you know, you have to keep paying the bills. As actually, all of you who are getting judged by how many RVUs you, you generate actually understand better than I do. Um, so hospital, a built bed is a filled bed. We've known that since the 70s. Physician supply is another important predictor. Put those two things together and you explain about 50% of the variation in per capita spending across communities. So having more doctors, we all tend to stay busy. Having more hospitals, we do more. The evidence from our earlier work, having more of us doing more things to people when we're not quite sure what to do, mostly for discretionary services, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, doesn't contribute to improved population health. What contributes to improved population health is when we do the right things right, when we deliver the things we know have strong evidence base and improve population health. Spending more on those things is great. Uh, spending more on extra visits to us isn't necessarily great. When we got that supply finding, um, we were really puzzled. What explains the rest of it? And we started to think it was something about clinical judgment, the way we as physicians make decisions. And we first looked at evidence-based decisions where the literature was very clear. And we interviewed patients, physicians around the country with a bunch of clinical vignettes. Um, and when there, were, when there was strong evidence underlying the choice, physicians sometimes disagreed, um, but mostly agreed. Uh, and the way they answered those questions was completely uncorrelated, um, even in, within the physician. So if you, were, you knew something about one cause of uh, one pro one uh, clinical problem, you didn't necessarily know something about another clinical problem. That was very interesting. Evidence-based decisions, it's about how well you know the literature, didn't explain differences in spending. Uh, but there was a whole other class of decisions. Uh, and this would, uh, cap this would be a typical one of those decisions. For a patient with well-controlled high blood pressure and no other problems, when would you schedule the next visit? So, I realized I hadn't been taught that in medical school. Um, we ran focus groups in both in Florida, Miami, the highest spending place on the planet. Um, actually, McAllen has just surpassed Florida. It's very interesting. Um, and, and Oregon. The docs in Oregon said we would see those patients every six months, maybe every year. 
Now, in Sweden, they would never see those patients, I've subsequently learned. The nurse would call them, and the register would record their blood pressure. But in Miami, they said they'd see those patients every month. <laughs> Philadelphia was really proud of itself. I gave talk to talk there, and they said every six weeks. Um, so there were about 20 other questions like this. When do you hospitalize a patient for a, a moderate exacerbation of heart failure? Uh, when do you order high-cost imaging? Uh, when do you refer to a specialist? Um, those judgment calls uh, correlated very well at the physician level. They were a, a wonderful index of your likelihood of doing something when you don't know what the answer is, you know, when there's no evidence to drive your decision making. That measure of physician intensity in the face of uncertainty was the most powerful predictor of geographic differences in per capita spending. Really neat. We thought we had it nailed, right? Except now you have to say, why is it clustered regionally? So just at about this time, John Skinner, um, Julie Bynum, and I had sort of, the Atlas had looked at trends in spending from 1992 to 2006 in every one of the 306 hospital referral regions. And John noticed, John Skinner noticed, this wonderful anomaly. El Paso and McAllen, Texas, both border communities on the Rio Grande, had started out with identical per capita spending in the lower half of the distribution back in 1992. By 2006, McAllen was the second highest spending place in the country. 8.3% annual growth rate compounded over that entire time. Well, we knew there had to be something interesting going on. Demographically identical communities, uh, and yet one had just skyrocketed in terms of per capita spending. So just at about this time, I was at a meeting with Don Berwick, and I said, you know, Don, we got to find out what's going on in McAllen. And he said, well, you need a, a report. You need a reporter to go look at this. I know Atul Gawande. Why don't you get Atul to do that? I said, I don't know Atul Gawande. Um, so he grabs his cell phone, dials and hands it to me, and there's Gawande on the other end of the, on the, other end of the phone. He said, we can't, can't talk right now, but let's talk further. So he, he went and investigated what was going on and wrote um, this article, The Cost Conundrum, about what a Texas town um, can teach us about health care. And it's, you know, he found a medical community that came to treat patients the way subprime mortgage lenders treated home buyers, as profit centers. Uh, he contrasted it with La Crosse, Wisconsin, where Jeff Thompson describes La Crosse, the lowest spending place in the country, as a culture that focuses on, focuses on the well-being of the community, not just the financial health of our system. Of course they have to pay attention to the financial health of their system. They are stewards of that system. That is going to be the health system for their community but it's not just about making money. Another set of observations. Um, when Mike Chernow and his colleagues at Harvard started looking at the under 65 population, we had been focusing on Medicare. When they started looking at the under 65 population, um, they found that differences in spending for the under 65 are largely due to differences in the prices charged by hospitals and physicians. Well, that was kind of interesting. So if you what, and their observation was, in, especially in markets where, hosp where hospitals or physicians had dominant positions in the market, the kind of, you know, monopoly power, well, they would raise their prices to consumers. It's kind of interesting. Um, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission looked at this question and did observe a similar thing. Prices are important. But hospitals that are under pressure to keep their prices down <coughs> do so. 
Well, that's kind of an interesting observation. Uh, it means that it's possible to reduce unit costs and thus prices. And you know, we are experiencing that here. Many places are. But it does mean that the decision to raise prices or raise costs to the patients in your community is a conscious choice that's made by hospital leaders. <coughs> so when, when we got to that point, um, Mark McClellan was just stepping down from running uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and was trying to figure out how are we going to do something about this mess that is the US healthcare system. He had heard about some of our work, uh, Julie Bynum and my work, trying to figure out how to, how to um, could we figure out the populations that were served by a local hospital by sort of assigning them first to a doc and then assigning the docs to the hospital. And he thought that that had promise as a way of starting to think about how we could create structures of accountability um, at a more local level. We also had, I'll, I'll come in a second, to an earlier model that Jack Wenberg and, and a couple of others had come up with for a population-based payment model. So what, what Dr. McClellan and I agreed on was a set of diagnoses for the underlying problems facing American healthcare. The first one is confusion about aims, and that's McCallum versus lacrosse. Is it about the money or is it about something more? Better health, better care, lower costs for both patients and communities. Limited data makes it really hard to know what's happening. Um, McCallum asserted that they never, the physicians in McCallum probably did not know that they were the highest per capita spending place, on, uh, second highest in the United States. Um, so we need much better information to support improvement, share decision making, and determine the true demand for, for care that sits there in the community. <coughs> Probably most important um, is this flawed conceptual model with which we approach healthcare. We think, I mean I was trained that way, and I think most of us still practice that way, that the way you produce health is face-to-face -face visits with doctors. Come back and see me in three weeks if you're slightly sicker, uh, or six weeks if you're not quite so sick. Uh, or six months if you're fine, but we manage patients by seeing them through face-to-face -face encounters. And that contributes to the fragmentation that patients experience. It contributes to our inability to control blood pressure because we, we uh, you know, clinical inertia, we wait, we, maybe, your, maybe your blood pressure will be better when you come back. Um, you know, we, we do not manage populations of care with a systems approach. And so we both realized that we needed to create organizations capable of redesigning practice, uh, reducing costs, and then right-sizing themselves if we have all this excess capacity that's driving excess spending. And fee-for-service medicine reinforces uh, the fragmentation that is experienced by patients. It also focuses accountability on each separate silo of the delivery system. So you have a quality measurement system for nursing homes, a quality measurement system for hospitals which has none of us working together. So let's change the payment system to realign both financial and, and professional incentives with our aims. Well, you know, we, we learned from Peter Orzog and others that a lot of the Atlas work really did contribute um, to, to the motivation for passing the Affordable Care Act, uh, realizing that we're wasting 30% of US healthcare spending on unnecessary dumb stuff that doesn't produce uh, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not using appropriately technical terms. Um, unnecessary stuff. Um, so the Affordable Care Act had lots of um, pieces to it, including this new payment model. Um, my favorite summary of the Affordable Care Act is given by David Nash, uh, who is a leader at the Jefferson School of Population Health in 
Philadelphia. And he says, you can summarize all of healthcare reform in four words. And it's wonderful to see that DH is getting ready for it. No outcome, no income. If you can't prove that you're providing great care, that you're providing high value care, you are going to be toast in the new healthcare reform environment. Um, the transition to new delivery models is, is uh, well underway and, and offers promise. Uh, this is sort of a schematic of the changes that are underway. The right-hand side of that uh, schematic um, you know, is fee-for-service would be just off to the left of pay-for-performance. Um, but almost everybody is starting to come under some kind of pay-for-performance scheme where physicians, you know, for maintenance of certification or otherwise, are going to get slight tweaks in their payments. Hospitals, if you don't have readmissions, you get a little higher payment rate. Uh, so. The left-hand side is about where the incentives, focus of responsibility, and locus of accountability under a fee-for-service or pay-for-performance model lie. You know, the incentives are about volume. The focus of responsibility is, as I said earlier, that individual patient and the specific encounter. And the locus of accountability is the individual provider um, and a single site of care. What we're seeing is a very, you know, purposive uh, transition to a very to a different set of structures where the incentives are focused on producing value from the patient's perspective. The focus of responsibility is both about the individual encounter, but about populations as well. What do you do to provide the best possible care to all of your patients with heart attack, all of your primary care patients, all of your cancer patients, all of your bone marrow transplant patient patients? So as populations, as well as patients within them, the full continuum of care, and then organizations becoming accountable for all sites of care. This is a really tough change for healthcare systems to try to go through. Um, let me step back and now summarize a little bit where we are on accountable care organizations as those have rolled out. You know, there's, a, there's a recent assessment that's being, or that's an assessment that's underway, which has basically concluded that you know, pay for performance isn't, isn't having much impact. Bundled payments or episode payments or readmission rate penalties aren't having much impact. And, and people are kind of hopeful that ACOs will, and we're not yet sure. But the, 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 the policymakers are sort of saying, you know, this looks promising. It might work. Um, so let's go back and look at the origins. It started um, when Jack Wenberg realized that he knew both people who lived in Randolph. <laughs> um, and if you know everyone who lives in a community, you can figure out how much is spent on them on a per capita basis this year. And you can say, well, if it costs $5,000 for this many people this year, we can predict you know, what it's going to be next year, more or less, pretty accurately, probably. The bigger the population, the more accurately you can predict what next year's, next year's costs are going to be. So back in the mid-90s, we said, let's do an experiment, Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the physicians at Gifford Hospital jointly taking accountability for the resident population of Randolph. And we'll propose to the payers, Medicare and Blue Cross, that we'll share savings uh, if, if we lower costs. Improving care wasn't part of the conversation. <laughs> let's just save money. Um, let's, uh, we'll get a share of the savings. We thought it was a brilliant idea. Nobody else did. It didn't go anywhere. Um, but then you know, Julie Bynum, Dan Gottlieb, and I started realizing that we could assign people to hospitals. Um, because physicians practice in natural networks around a given hospital, and patients tend to, tend to come get their care uh, from, the, from a, a given physician. And so we could pretty accurately assign everyone in the United States 
to a hospital and its associated physician practice. We presented those findings at, at MedPAC, uh, and uh, they kind of liked the idea. The, the benefits of doing this population attribution are it's much easier to measure quality um, because you've got big numbers. Uh, and you can do this projection of, vert of spending and start to think about a shared savings model uh, for the physicians uh, and, associated and hospital associated with that particular one or two unit <laughs> hospitals. And so, you know, after about two years more work uh, with AMA, AHA, all sorts of other people, consumer groups, trying to get them to be excited about this idea or at least tolerant of it. Uh, and then this Congressional Budget Office scoring it as saving money, which really helps. You know, if Congress, if the CBO scores an idea as saving money, what's Congress going to do? They're going to put it in any, any next piece of legislation they can because it lets them build more bridges to nowhere. So because you've saved money under budget rules in one place, you can now spend more in others. So it got stuck in the affordable, it ended up in the Affordable Care Act with those attributes. So in 2009, there were about 21 of these things. Massachusetts had already moved forward with the, uh, the alternative quality contract by Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is an almost identical model. Uh, as of last summer, there were 340 of them. Most recent estimates by Levitt uh, Consulting Group thinks there's 600. You know, and about one out of 10 Americans are getting care in systems that have an ACO contract. And you know, one out of four of us live in a market where there is one. Um, you all probably know that Dartmouth-Hitchcock is involved in this payment model as part of the Pioneer program, and is really one of the leaders of this initiative. But I want to, so I'll, I'll, you know, I will step a little bit away toward a place called Unity Point Health um, to describe um, how their ACO, how they've trans, how the transition they made. Um, they started out as a hospital system in Iowa. Jim probably knows them well. Um, but they decided to transition from a hospital-centric system to a physician-led organization focusing on improving population health, uh, a very different model. They realized they had to put together value-based care capability sets across from community-based physicians to FQHCs to everyone. Everyone had to work together to try to improve care. It's interesting. They recognized that there are a bunch of technical capabilities that you have to do, and these are the obvious things. You have to do population health. You know, have to do quality measurements, you need to be able to risk stratify, et cetera, et cetera. But much harder, much harder are the adaptive capabilities that you need to develop um, to help people learn to work in new ways, learn to work across organizational boundaries. And I think these are the, these are the cultural changes that ACOs are finding, um, finding hardest to move forward and implement. But, uh, yeah, there it's hard. What can I say? Um, Optimus is a primary care-based physician of ACO that's giving huge bonuses to its primary care physicians this year because they were able to reduce utilization substantially um, by putting in these are Optimus is in New Jersey small single physician practices. They're putting in these capabilities in the clinic in each clinical practice and markedly improving care. Of course, in New Jersey, it's easy to save money because it's the second most expensive place on the planet. Um, one of the interesting things about accountable care organizations is they're much more diverse than we anticipated. We're surveying all of them through our National Survey of Accountable Care Organizations uh, that Carrie Kala is leading at TDI. You know, the FQHC <clears throat> Urban Health Network in Minneapolis is 10 FQHCs 
coming together to form an ACO supported by a medical service organization. They are a, an amazing place. Um, they can treat patients speaking 110 different languages. Uh, they can provide care management. They're going to be an attractive place for Medicaid patients to go. Um, it's a very interesting, interesting uh, model. Walgreens is, oops, I'm sorry. Walgreens is sponsoring, has sponsored three and has plans to do many more. Imagine how wonderful it is to be able to get access to care um, 24 hours a day at your local Walgreens. Who's going to want to drive over to DHMC and wait four hours for a visit uh, when you can get care locally? Clay Christensen, Clayton Christensen, who's one of the business gurus in the, in the United States, looks at, at, at the world through the lens of disruptive innovation. And if you look at almost all of the changes in industries, whether it's computers, uh, radios, steel industry, the disruption of existing industries, innovation happens coming from the low end of the market. It's ignored by the incumbent firms. Uh, and then the, the new entrants, like Walgreens or FQHCs, start to say, well, you know, we're, we can provide better and better care. We're going to make iPads available to all of, our, all of our patients so they don't even have to come at all. They can do Skype visits with us. Um, they're going to be able to pick up their prescriptions. Without, we're going to get specialists from Mayo to consult with our patients over, over the iPad and do Skype consultations. And you now have a low-cost, um, high-quality firm with none of the capacity that we have, we are encumbered with, um, potentially disrupting uh, the major health centers that are built in this old model. So I think there's a, who knows whether it will happen, but if you look at what's happening in, this, in these new models through the lens of uh, Christensen's disruptive innovation, it's very interesting. And I would be nervous, and it's good that we're at the cutting edge of this here, starting to make those changes rather than just waiting and hoping the whole thing will go away, as many places are. Um, the early evidence on ACOs is that they are saving money. Uh, so this is, we were part of the physician group practice demonstration. Overall savings were modest. But Marshfield Clinic uh, really paid a lot of attention to this. So, but it's probably not going to be enough. The early evidence is good, but I don't think it's going to be sufficient. And there are a few reasons. Um, I'm going to highlight two of them. First is, you know, it is amazing still that we have such a shaky foundation for the practice of medicine. You know, if the drug companies are only releasing half of the studies about any particular agent, we are practicing with an incomplete data set that's biased toward, a suit, toward, toward benefit. Um, I don't want, I'm not going to spend long on this. You should get uh, Steve... Steve Willosh and Lisa Schwartz to come give grand rounds about what they're doing to try to improve the evidence foundation under for prescription drugs. Glenn Elwin is working on this. There's a there's an international movement trying to say, you know, Getsy and other Getsy and others from Norway, how can we improve the scientific foundation of clinical practice? We can't do it without a high integrity evidence base. Um, I'll talk more about the second problem. You know, healthcare may simply just be too complex to solve through the market. Um, we know there's a lot of bad behavior on the part of hospitals, um, forming monopolies, raising prices. That's going to be challenging market mechanisms. Someone's going to either have to regulate it or do something about it. The second problem is that the social, behavioral, and economic determinants of health are incredibly powerful. We know that what makes people healthy is early childhood education. You know, the recent study in, published in Science about long-term health outcomes from interventions from age zero to two. Uh, so, 
behavioral, social, economic factors, if we don't pay attention to them, they will bankrupt us, um, even if we do everything we can possible to fix US healthcare. So about seven years ago, uh, Laura Landy, who's in the middle there, uh, and was the president of the Fannie Ripple Foundation, decided that she would take a pause in what they were spending their money on, which was hospital beds and electron microscopes. There's a Ripple electron microscope here at Dartmouth. Uh, and try to think about what would be required uh, to make healthcare better in the United States. She started to reach outside healthcare, a few of us from healthcare, Don Berwick, myself, um, but she reached outside healthcare to a bunch of really, really smart people. I mean, I don't think of myself as in their league. You know, Eleanor Ostrom, Nobel Prize laureate in economics in 2009. Uh, Amory Lovins, uh, you know, an amazing thinker about energy who brought the concept of end use least cost to the energy world and then brought it to us as we started to think about what would be required in healthcare. So we've, we spent about seven years developing some theories, developing a systems model that I'll talk about in a second. And then, you know, and at about this time, we realized global payment models would be really important. ACO kind of payment models would be really important. Uh, Jim had met Laura and asked Laura to join uh, the Dartmouth-Hitchcock board. So she's now a board member here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, sharing her insights with all of us here. And, and what's emerged from this is three strong strategies, three pretty strong theories about what's going to be required to fix American healthcare. And I will, you know, do a cursory trip through each of those, and I'll do my best to explain them. Um, because we're both trying them nationally, uh, Atlanta, Pueblo, uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is funding a, a planning grant that may launch this initiative in 20 places around the country. Um, and we're trying it locally here with great trepidation, but you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, uh, as Wayne Gretzky said. So let's start first with this notion of active stewardship. Uh, this, Eleanor Ostrom got the Nobel Prize in 2009, as I said, for her research that showed that it is possible to overcome the tragedy of the commons. You're all familiar with the tragedy of the commons, why fisheries are collapsing, because everyone tries to put another boat out on the waters off New England, and it's in their self-interest to do so until the fishery collapses. Same is true in forests. You see it in water rights. Uh, and she started asking herself the question in the 1970s, you know, the, the traditional, maybe the traditional view is wrong. The traditional view is that these common pool resources create social dilemmas. There are only two possible solutions. You either treat them as private goods and create a market, um, private property rights, or treat them as public goods and use regulation. And she showed empirically with a bunch of fancy utility theories um, that that's not true. If local knowledge means anything, um, local governance models may be more, are likely to be more the theoretically more effective if you can create them. She then started to ask herself, are there examples of effective local governance structures for stewardship anywhere in the world? And found you know, hundreds of them. And they have uh, um, the following attributes. Defined boundaries and known appropriators. The appropriators would be the fishermen or uh, the shepherds or healthcare providers, right? We know the boundaries of healthcare markets in the United States. You build another hospital, extract more income from your population, you are an appropriator. And whose money do we think it is anyway? But that's a separate question. Um, 
Those affected help establish the rules. Uh, there's monitoring of how much is being extracted from the resource. Graduated sanctions, the first thing you do is just say, hey, George, you're taking more than your fair share of the water. Uh, conflict resolution mechanisms and higher authorities tolerate the development of these local structures. There are a bunch of processes that contribute, and stewardship is a core value of these entities that have been successfully established elsewhere. That's a fishery in Turkey, Alanya. There are a bunch of roles that have been identified. They're shown here. Uh, Understanding local needs and resources, getting a vision, prioritizing targets, identifying duplication, finance, financing incentives, developing strategies, um, and engaging government where needed to solve problems. So the Los Angeles water basin was in crisis with saltwater intruding. Um, and what the group that came together to try to save their water basin did was say, shoot, we're not going to be able to do this by ourselves. We need someone to monitor how much water is coming out. And they just went to Sacramento, got a law passed that just said we'll monitor it. And as soon as it became transparent who was taking how much water out of the water basin, people started to say, well, now we're going to have to regulate that locally. Atlanta has adopted this model. Um, they have put together the Atlanta Regional Collaborative for Health Improvement. All of the major stakeholders have come together in Archie to say for DeKalb and Fulton counties, the two largest inner city counties in Atlanta, how can we solve this? And it's pretty interesting. And then here we are. Uh, so Barbara Couch, myself, Sarah Kobolinski, who's executive director of The Haven, Laura, Greg Meyer, when he was here, helped launch this. Now, now Ethan Burke is with us, Al Mully, Gene Nelson, and Steve Voigt, who is CEO of King Arthur. We, became, we agreed to become an initial planning team and try to see if we could launch this initiative here. Uh, and we've got a shared vision. Is, you know, I won't, can tell you about our shared vision if you want. But let me go to the second piece of this, which is strategy. Uh, we were very lucky in this early work to have John Sturman, who is the Forrestal, James Forrestal Professor of Systems Engineering at MIT, join us in the work. And the reason systems modeling is important um, is we're just not very good at thinking about complex problems. Our, our mental models don't let us do it. Um, we, we, the, the benefits of a model are is it allows you to build formal theory, incorporate the kinds of things that we can't think about. How long does it take for something to be implemented? How long does it take to have its impact? What are the positive and negative feedback loops that you can anticipate? Um, what happens if you run out of primary care physicians when you expand the number of people coming on to, uh, the affordable, under the affordable care? All of the kinds of things that when you try to put them together in your head, it actually blows up and you don't think about them. And you make a whole bunch of mistakes um, in thinking. So what systems models do they're being used now, simple models are being used in climate science and here in healthcare now to let us test our thinking. You know, so here's a, here's a cartoon of what the systems model that Rethink Health built um, includes. You know, basically, you're trying to say there are a whole bunch of trends. What happens to health? What happens to cost? What happens to the quality of care? Um, when you turn about 30 levers that I'll show you in just a second. It's a really neat model. Uh, people from MIT have developed it with us. It was built on a CDC behavioral health model. We've now tested it in Pueblo, Atlanta. We have a model for any town USA that's, that, that works probably pretty well everywhere. So it allows you to test different interve interventions. So what do you want to do to reduce risk? Do you want to reduce crime? Do you want to reduce environmental hazards, healthier behaviors? You can click on one of these, set it as a slider, and say, how much do we want to spend on this? Uh, you can do something about. Uh, care. Should we improve care for physical illness through evidence-based guidelines? Mental illness. 
focus on hospital-acquired infections. We include, the model includes almost all of the strong evidence-based interventions that we now know um, how to do in both healthcare and, and population health uh, to make a difference, that might theoretically make a difference. And so you then can think about how you might reduce costs by re improving primary care, what could be done in terms of uh, further care coordination and other interventions. Uh, you then have to figure out what, whether you want to make the economy get stronger or weaker. You can simulate whatever you want, pretty much whatever you want. And then you have to figure out how to pay for it. And the way the model sets up, and it's like a, a game, you get 1% of your local per capita spending uh, to invest in interventions in your community for the first for five years. And then it goes away. It'd be like getting a grant from RWJ. Uh, and Atlanta used the model, 80 p a room not much smaller than this, uh, 80 people in it, used the model, um, different tables, to figure out, so what interventions shall we undertake um, in order to uh, improve population health and lower costs? They actually converged over the course of about three hours on a set of strategies that they wanted to implement. Uh, let me do this in a... I'll, I'll flip backwards. Um, so what they, they decided on balanced investments, population upstream, downstream, and focusing on cost. Payment reform, quickly discovered that this doesn't work without moving to ACO payment. And sustainable finance. That is, if you want to make this thing work, the best way to do it, um, because you run out of money, is to say, what if we cut a deal with the payers where if we achieve savings, um, we get a little bit of the savings to come back to the community for reinvestment in the population health initiatives. Uh, that turns out to be a, 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 a transformative decision because you end up with huge resources. If you look at program, the, the red lines on this graph are their preferred strategy. So productivity goes up dramatically. Costs go, healthcare costs go down substantially. I'll show you the results in a second. But look at what happens to program spending when you get a little of them, when you take a little bit of the money and bring it back to the community. You have huge resources that allow you to take an intervention that early childhood, early childhood education, for example, which is really expensive, um, and implement it and spread it across a community. So it allows you to think sensibly about how to manage the time course of these things. And this is what Atlanta predicted they would achieve um, if they adopted those strategies. The prediction let them set up three work groups, you know, one working on population health, one working on improving health care, and one working on sustainable finance. So it's pretty neat. Um, there are a bunch of, uh, I won't spend much time on sustainable finance. That third one is the Randolph Project. <laughs> and Akron is actually trying to do that, Akron, Ohio. Let's, let's get all the payers to, instead of having an ACO, let's get us all to contribute back to the Akron Accountable Health Community. Uh, and we will have now have the resources from shared savings, everyone stays in fee-for-service, um, to invest elsewhere. But it, it, it won't be easy, um, but it might be fun. So let me end with uh, a little story about uh, Tucson ACO. Um, actually, let me do one primary care story first. So some of you may have heard um, the group health implemented a patient-centered medical home model as a pilot. Uh, it was published in Health Affairs. The results showed that if you 
redesign practice completely from the ground up so that docs have forty minutes or thirty minutes to see their patients and you're having nurses and health educators and registry techs do most of the care you can improve care dramatically, much higher adherence with evidence-based guidelines and better blood pressure control. You can improve patient satisfaction tremendously. Uh, you can reduce costs and you can reduce stakeholder burnout. So nurses, docs are all having more fun. The year before they undertook the pilot, Harry Shriver, who was a practicing physician in the clinic, 11 physicians, said, I'm putting in for early retirement. I hate clinic. I hate primary care. It sucks. And I may, may not have said that. Um, <laughs> but he put in for early retirement. Three quarters of the way through the year, um, he said, you know, I'm having so much fun, I'm withdrawing my early retirement. This is why I came into medicine. He then, six months later, recruited his younger da his daughter to join him in the primary care practice as a family practitioner. So there is hope from these new models. And you can tell, there's stories of specialists, exactly the same sense of excitement in some of these ACOs, that now they get to provide much better care, align their care with, you know, why they came to medicine in the first place. So back to TACO, uh, Tucson Accountable Care Organization. That was their initial name, and they decided it wasn't quite right. Um, so they shifted to Arizona Connected Care. That's Judy Rich, who was the founder. Um, and Judy, uh, two years ago, was faced with a crisis. The emergency room physicians came to her and said, we got a deal for you. Um, we will not charge you at all to staff your emergency room. We will just charge out-of-network rates for everyone who comes to the emergency room. So those of you who know inside baseball and billing stuff, that means everyone who comes through the hospital door gets charged three times as much as they would have if they were on their contract. And Judy basically said, I'm sorry that's not the way we do things anymore. Whose money do you think that is? That's our community's money. Uh, and she figured out a way around the problem, staffed their emergency room another way. Pal Evans, who's the physician there who came back from retirement to help launch this, uh, said, you know, about a year ago, you know, this is the first time since 1974 when I came into practice when I think things are starting to turn out right for the, have a chance of turning out right for the patient. And I remember so well, you know, Dr. Chambers saying it's about the patient. And so there's a moment here where I'm starting to feel, you know, hopeful. And DH is, is at the at the forefront of this. So let's stay focused on the patient. And it'll be hard. It will be really hard. But it could be fun. So thank you very much. Another example would be we believe that 
as Rose said early on, <clears throat> that scientific training is good for our, our trainees, but hard to prove. So as we are aligning our shape of care and you know, that training mm -hmm. to this, and embark on this bold new course, how do we build into that system the difficult to measure stuff that we can't link to payment, but which we kind of know in our guts is important without aligning ourselves to the necessity to make changes like this? Yeah. Yeah, Tim, what a great question. You know, the, and I think there are probably several ways that uh, we need to think about it. Um, the first is I think the most important, you know, there's a, the whole paper performance literature is, uh, has in it a question. That is, how hard should you try to uh, assign value and, and reward improved performance as opposed to be transparent about performance and just get the financial incentives out of the way of doing the right thing? And that's a, so, so the, the technical issues around payment systems, so one is to the extent that you can lighten, lighten the touch of the measurement system to enable docs to do what they really want to do and should do, um, I think we have a better shot at it than trying to micromanage every little bit with a performance measure for every little bit. Um, the second is I think we really need to work uh, for better measures, you know, measures of what really matters to patients. So if you can, if you can, and these are all measurable things. You know, you can measure whether someone thought they were treated compassionately. That's not hard. Um, you can measure whether someone was uh, engaged in engaged in getting the information they need uh, to make a decision, informed choice. Um, whether their provider tried to elicit from them what was important to them, uh, and whether their provider uh, tried to integrate what they learned from the patient about what mattered. With, to them with the care plan that was developed. That is, those three items are the measure that's now being tested here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock developed by Glenn Ellen called Collaborate. You know, did the doc and patient, did the doctor help you make a decision that was aligned with your values and preferences? So I, I think we, you know, we can measure functional outcomes, so, but, but we need to work much harder to put those measures in place because the current measures are pathetic. Um, so that, those would be two answers. Uh, and you know, I I spend a lot. I'm now really lucky to go spend time in uh, places that are trying this and kind of taking it seriously, uh, and are far enough over the payment hurdle that they can take a breath. And it there is a you know there's a remarkably high <coughs> level of sort of what Cal was talking about. You know, gosh, now we can do what we want to do for the patients. We're not, you know, once you get off the fee-for-service treadmill, um, you are, yeah, you got to worry about budgets and, you know, Dan Jansen will have to keep paying, keep working hard to keep us all solvent. Um, but but uh, people start to say, this is fun again. So Optimus, Jim Barr, and Tom Kluge, who run the Optimus ACO, you know, they started it because they wanted to be able to provide good care again. Um, they recruited the physicians by specifically by telling these very powerful stories about how they transformed their practices, and now felt good about being a doctor again. So I think those the stories, the values, being able to say, you know, I came to this because I really want to provide great care to patients. You know, it's not about the money. 
Um, that's my community's money. I'm here because, I, yes, I need to make a decent living, but I'm here to be a steward of this. Those, you know, now, full warning, you know, I am a naive optimist. I only see the things I like to see. You know, there's lots of bad stuff happening. Um, but the good stuff makes me kind of hopeful that maybe if enough of those stories get out there, that others will say, well, that's what I want to do too. I'm Thank you for being here today. Thank you.